Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. This evening, we're talking about public art, or perhaps art in public. Monash University Museum of Art and Monash Art Projects recently co-presented a two-day symposium titled Let's Go Outside, Making Art Public, to reflect on what the organizers described as the growing interest in making and presenting art outside of the conventional gallery context, and explore the opportunities and complexities of realizing art in the public realm. Charlotte Day, the director of the Monash University Museum of Art, and artist Professor Callum Morton, who is also director of Monash Art Projects, joined me in the studio a few days after the conference for a chat. I started our conversation by asking Charlotte to explain what she meant by public art. Well, most people think of public art as art that's located in the public sphere, so in public spaces outside of galleries and museums. But with our symposium, and uh, which we called Let's Go Outside, Making Art Public, we wanted to think about public art as a, a conceptual space as well as a space that's you know in literally inside or out uh, so it's a space where there's a level of engagement with an audience perhaps not only those who choose to look for art or come to see art but are going to come across art or it's in their peripheral vision or they trip over it or maybe they don't even know that they're engaging with it I suppose we we're interested in what that space could be, that, la- that kind of expanded space of art. And, and you're an artist, Callum, who's yes. done public art. Yes. From, from your point of view, how, yeah. how would you do Well, that? I think Nikos said it in the conference best when he said that art has been outside much longer than it has been inside. So when you look historically at statuary and public monuments, that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. So the public art that we're kind of describing in the conference you could sort of regard in a different way, but certainly for me as an artist, I've been working on, not always, I have done temporary works, and I'm interested in that actually, and there are some things I've done recently, but it's more the difficult business of negotiating permanence in public work, and there are so many different types of that work over so many years and I think it's kind of fascinating because implementing things is difficult and you have to negotiate all sorts of terrain. You have to collaborate with all sorts of people to uh, realise projects like that and for works to be read over long periods of time is interesting as well. I mean that's something that came up at the conference quite a few times. At one point someone said you know what do we do with the work that doesn't make sense anymore and I had issues with that because there is work from the recent past which may not make sense because society is elastic and, of, of course, things change, but yet that work still has kind of value, 
you know, in different time frames and from different lenses. So, In your mind, is there a distinction between sort of commemorative statues, as you mentioned, and public art? Because certainly there are movements to get rid of statues that commemorate things that are now recognised as offensive to large portions of society. Yeah, rightfully so. I mean, that's the elasticity of things. I suppose there's, um, you know, the difference between a monument and an anti-monument. And so the things that I'm interested in are probably anti-monuments. They're things that you wouldn't necessarily celebrate or things that are excluded or other voices that aren't heard and certainly Charlotte and I are both interested in those things and the works that you're referring to obviously they're difficult works having to negotiate the past through contemporary lens and incredibly problematic figures and so on you know the anti-monument I suppose makes space for uh, new voices and you can also think about those types of commemorative sculptures that maybe don't function as they once did doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't exist, just perhaps how we relate to them might change significantly or even um, the context we surround them with might shift you know, in radical ways which might be as interesting or more interesting than removing them or negating them. And that came up at the conference in the Fantastic Indigenous panel and Brian Martin was talking about these statues of Cook in Sydney, you know, obviously during Australia Day protests them being sprayed. Well, corrected. (laughs) Corrected in a kind of violent way. That's kind of reinventing that form, in Mm. fact. It's uh, putting it through another prism. But the correction is uncorrected. The city comes and washes what's done. But the image proliferates. You know, the other public that we should talk about is the public of the digital and the virtual. I mean, that's a bigger public, really, isn't it? So if that image exists and proliferates far more broadly across the world than it would something you'd encounter on the street, I would say. And it creates a response from the federal government. You know, did the Prime Minister speak to that? You know, so it it does create a a discussion, a conversation. I suppose at the end of the day, that's what you want most from art. That takes us to engagement. How do you measure engagement. Public artworks are different to commemorative statues. Even though um, Callum and I did work on a project together that is both commemorative in a sense, isn't it? Don't you think? At Docklands. Do you Mm. want to tell us about that? Yeah, Monument Park. It's in Docklands and was a project uh, in collaboration with McBride, Charles Ryan Architects and Oculus Landscape Architects with the developers MAB in the difficult Docklands context. And the project we took various public works in the collection of Melbourne City Council, public art collection, and I scanned a number of colonial figures. Oh, and there were there was a you know vault was in there as well and then wrapped them and covered them and then sort of buried them under this kind of concrete rug that then became seats for people so it was taking this kind of collection these colonial figures and erasing them actually and then breaking holes in them and they become another way to sort of occupy them how would i know if i sat down on the seat that i was sitting on a colonial figure Well, you didn't, and I didn't want it to be signposted like that, actually, because I didn't want it to be so didactic. It was just, I was always open and declared what it was, and, you know, in the beginning, and I've talked about it openly, that this is Flinders and this is Cook and so on. But no, I wanted it to still kind of be ambiguous. It was something you discovered as you interacted with it over time you know and you will be curious about it's what it was i think from being in that space you have a strong feeling that there are figures under these forms Mm. so i mean maybe that's the thing that alerts you to something else going on but you know i don't think it's always necessary for that to be fully disclosed you know interesting work is something that can also unfold and maybe get under your 
subconscious a little bit. I don't think all work has to be didactic. No. You know, I certainly never have subscribed to that. But you know, it, I think it can be open. But invisibility I'm talking about. Like if it's buried underground, there's an invisibility, isn't oh. there? Well, no, you can, you can, see, you can see that there's a figure on a horse. Okay. You know, you can you can't see what the figure is, but if you look, you know, long enough, and you'd hope you would, you might register that. But it's also a kind of intersection with abstraction in sculpture as well. So we talked earlier about these different forms in different times and whether they have a relevance in one time or not. In the gallery space or a museum space, often you can rely on text with artwork, you know, and it's the combination not always but sometimes it can be the combination between the two that is the art experience you have whereas in public space I Mm. mean often you're not going to have a kind of text or a label I mean you could but you might not you might be driving past something you may not literally even be stopping you know so the way you interact is quite different so the work has to hold its own hold its own Mm. but um so at Monash we've had this program of doing public uh, kind of interventions across the campus And for me, the idea is that everything has its own tone or approach and there's not really... It's best actually not to have one way to do it. Like, we're actually trying to create something that each work operates in a different way. You know, and some may not be even recognised as art. They might seem like they're an extension of the architecture of a space or the landscape that surrounds them. The art aspect maybe is less important than the sense of creating a connection to a place to the context in which, you know, we're living, working, studying, sharing, the deeper history, particularly, you know, around uh, respecting and appreciating that we're on country, plus the colonial situation of Australia, you know, acknowledging that, as well as the changing demographic of people who choose to be here. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can involve art in broader discussions. So on the one hand, you have work that Yes, in terms of engagement, it needs to be literal. Perhaps Monument Park should have kind of panels, but I'd, I kind of come from another tradition where I want it to be open and read in other ways. But they're equally, you know, there's an argument to say that you, you could have that and that might encourage a certain other engagement. Because you can engage with works on so many different levels. So you can encounter a work... I know the artist Peter Tyndall never read the didactic panels on Indigenous painting because he was just... He, he was interested in the work aesthetically to begin with and he used that as a way to enter the kind of story or to understand the kind of context. And so people can go that way. They can go straight into it aesthetically just be drawn to it for some reason and then find out. I always kind of prefer to do that. Even the way you, you know, as someone who works in galleries or museums, even the way you write those panels or those labels is changing uh, a lot now because I suppose they often were an authoritative space and I think that's been challenged quite a lot. I find um, art galleries kind of really oppressive sometimes. Like I get gallery fatigue and I don't go to the National Gallery here because it's so full. So full, Mm. you have to jostle, you have to line up for an hour Mm. to get a ticket. And I just feel like that's not how I want to experience art. And sometimes I think maybe I should just give up my life and become a billionaire so I can have, (laughs) you know, uh, private viewing times. There would be lots of parts of the National Gallery of Victoria, though, that aren't overrun. Just go into the collection spaces. There'll be two people up there. Yeah, and And beautiful body. You know, beautiful works that yeah. deserve as much attention as what happens so the permanent, So the permanent collections are, are worthwhile. Mm. Absolutely. It's an incredible collection, actually. Um, the Fulton Bequest, it, it enabled that gallery to buy works around the world before there were embargoes. They could go and buy, you know, Renaissance works of great quality, and it's, a, it's an extraordinary collection. Yeah. Actually, and we're very lucky to have it, but no one really looks at it. 
you know, yes, because of the blockbuster exhibitions, which yeah, seem so to be a, ruining um, well, art experience for it, everyone. It comes back to your question of engagement. So you can have engagement like that. It is a particular type of work that will give you that engagement and a particular type of methodology to create the excitement around it. Or you can choose to be more critical in the way you... Um, want to engage with communities. Does it matter for public art that people stopped and looked, that people, mm. without being vulgar I mean, about metrics or anything like that, is there is there any way to gauge what's happening, what the interaction is? We do look at social media from the university, particularly student-driven social media. You are based uh, in the university. Yeah, right? we actually have some pretty interesting things that happen in that space. Then it's more anecdotal feedback, comments, particularly from people who are located in re- in relationship to something can be interesting, but often we'll just have responses that are coming direct to us that we haven't initiated. I think it came up from some other speakers that perhaps they also more formally record interactions or I suppose that's a form of surveillance, really. Yeah, I think uh, maybe, yeah. maybe when we have cameras everywhere, CCTV everywhere, mm. it'll be a great way to kind of... <laughs> But we do have. Yeah, we do already. It would be a better way to kind of engage engagement with public art. But something like um, Untitled Seven Monuments, which is the project that Auntie Joy Murphy Wandon, Jonathan Jones and Tom Nicholson have done around the um, historical boundary of Corrondirk, which is a really important Indigenous community near Healesville. What I like about that work is that, well, you can't easily access all points of that project but you can go on a journey to some of them so the work it both has a symbolic function because you know perhaps you can't get to all of it but then it also has something that's very personal and experiential the parts that you can access and the work of these seven cans with a and they dug a hole and inserted a flagpole upside down into the ground so you'll see these they're very humble brick cans um, with commemorative plates that talk about, you know, the history of Corin Dirk and so on. And the bricks are actually from, were drawn from the community in Healesville. So they put out a request to the community to donate bricks and they got a lot of bricks donated yes, because when Corin Dirk was destroyed, a lot of those bricks went into the community to build the houses in Healesville. So it's a beautiful project. You know, this whole question of engagement, as Charlotte said, you can't get to some of them unless you really trek. So it's a sort of individual engagement with the work and I think that's incredibly powerful. And symbolically, it'll proliferate, you know, on social media. Just the fact that it's there is a, is a fantastic thing. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown and this week I'm talking to Charlotte Day and Callum Morton about public art. 
one of the examples given during the symposium was um, the curator from Mona who talked about mm-hmm. Jared, Rollins, Jared Rollins, who talked about the project where the artist was buried. Mike Paz. R- under the road in front of the Herbert Town Hall, I think it mm. was. He said he heard anecdotally that people would drive out of the way to drive over the artist. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a fantastic example of engagement. You mm. know? That's interesting, isn't it? Because both those projects are, well, and also the Callum's one that he talked about earlier, Monument Park, they're all about a kind of covering up or hiding of things as well as revealing, hmm. aren't they? So they both, they are all anti-monuments in yeah, a way. Yeah, Mike's engagement was, you know, he was dedicating the work to Indigenous genocide yeah. um, and those communities, and those communities turned up when he went into the hole and 5,000 people turned up to watch him go in. Yeah, I, I thought they were, they were lending him support because there'd been some criticism. They had, because yeah. they had been, yeah. Yeah, I think there'd been confusion of... <laughs> how he was talking and Mm. what he was talking about. I think he wanted to connect with, obviously, the history of Tasmania, but through his own broader understanding of tragedy, loss, erasure, violence, you know, rather than trying to speak on their behalf. Now, Callum, what, what's, your, what's been your favourite example of engagement with your art? Do you, have you got... Oh, for me, in my yeah, art? Yeah, um, has it created a meme? Or yeah, <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a work on the East Link Freeway called Hotel, which I'll go to my grave as um, it being the kind of most significant thing I did, because it's on the side of a freeway and it is this work that might otherwise appear on the side of a freeway. So it's a kind of anti-monument in that sense. It's not public art. And I wasn't really interested in doing public art in in that sense. Rather kind of reproduce some sort of parallel universe. And so it's impossibly thin. It looks like a cartoon, but people do think that it's real. So you have this thing that, whether it's for a moment or or not. And so it's had a lot of engagement over over the years. And there was a site called um, That Awkward Moment when you think this thought this was a real hotel on Facebook and that went completely viral and 60 to 70 percent of the comments were were what a waste of money um why are you spending all this money on public art when we don't have enough money for hospitals which is fine and of course uh, right but it wasn't actually public money it was private money there was a t-shirt i stayed at the east link hotel and you know violent femmes latest latest album has it on the cover so it you know these things do proliferate in ways so that is actually encountering an entirely new audience if you put something on the side of a freeway that activates a narrative or activate something not just as a kind of symbolic thing but actually has a live narrative to it or some sense of it as generic as it might be I think it does pierce the consciousness of people and so everyone who drives down to Mornington has some sort of engagement with that work so I like that and I think that's the beauty of public art that on the one hand you have this incredibly vitriolic social media commentary around things which is always trash it's the it's the sewer you know we all know that but then you also have this other side which is this kind of complex engagement with things on my dark nights I used to troll through some of those comments and you do have people that uh, are really engaged with it in curious ways and I think that's kind of for me the thing that's interesting about public art Bertolt Brecht talked about wanting people to talk about art as they did sport and being and, and people talk about and I do it too talk about football in really sophisticated ways everyone's a coach and you know the nuances of the game you want people to be talking about art in that way and so public art can do that so it's inherently more democratic because you don't have to choose to go it is you're, you're you, kind of everyone gets to be experience this art and you can hate experiencing that you can go I didn't want to see that <laughs> on my way morning. why am I seeing that I don't want to see I didn't go to a gallery to see that but uh, but equally you can enjoy that is graffiti public art certainly last week I was 
at Federation Square and then walking across up Russell Street, I think, and you go past um, Hosier Lane and it's full of people at all times of the day yeah, and night. I mean, that's... that's, that's, un- that's enga- if you want, want to talk about engagement, that's a... Yeah, I mean, people choose to have their wedding photos there. It's mm. a tourist site. It, you know, pe- people just love walking through it. So I think, yeah, it is a public art site. I think there's a difference between, and I don't even know if this difference matters, but there's a bit of a difference between tagging and, you know, street art. I spend a lot of time living in Paran. There's a lot of um, street art in Paran too. It's not only in the city. I suppose how different councils respond to street art and how they think it part or not of the fabric of their cities or their suburbs is interesting. And that's something that's changing as well, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's another place to have a voice, you know, yeah. to um, to express yourself to share what you think like all other types of art there's you know some that's more interesting than others but you know certainly there's a place for it yeah i got no beef with street art actually and there are great examples of it and we were talking earlier about the defacing of colonial public sculpture in protest around australia day and you know spraying invasion day and i would say that that is street art and that's the early form of street art it's a kind of political message usually around social justice it's kind of dangerous people don't want it they want to clean it up and so on the authorities erase it exactly because it's ugly and it's and it's doing it's engaging publics in a in a kind of very direct way it proliferates on social media all the rest of it whereas hosier lane is kind of a sanctioned idea and i've got friends who who paint like that and they paint in those communities and that's all fine but it is a particular you know i think it's lost it's i think it's lost that ability to cut through it does become it's like cook's cottage it becomes sort of background for other things and no one really looks at it you know they just occupy the space so that's kind of interesting charlotte you talked about being involved very early on yeah there was a group of artists in the early mid 90s who actually got a grant to set up light boxes in a few sites in laneways in the city when those laneways weren't so fashionable fashionable Mm. exactly um so in some ways that was probably the start of that type of repurposing of those spaces but it's certainly gone to a new level it sounds to me like public art like institutional art or art that's in institutions maybe it's just for rich people I mean, of course, the art world, particularly the contemporary art world, but the art world has traditionally been the preserve of the 1%. You know, they can afford it, they inflate the prices and they play with it in that way. But that's not necessarily how artists think. So there's this great contradiction or paradox for artists, you know, that they make their work and then they exhibit it in spaces to audiences or collectors. So you have a kind of politic around it that one would be more right-wing and conservative, the idea of, you know, the the private collector perhaps buying works for their own collection and that you only see when you go into the privacy of their home and then I guess a more left wing which is the kind of creative industries model which is trying to get as many people engaged with art as possible so then the NGV with all its numbers looks very attractive obviously to you know uh, a left wing government because it, it describes engagement and diversity and access and it describes that you know large volumes of that it's I mean it's still a work of a particular type that does that so there's a kind of dumbing down I think that often happens in that process so for us the the public art thing is some way potentially to kind of escape that because you I mean you have to go through all these kind of difficult bureaucratic processes to realize public artwork 
temporary or permanent, but the money comes from, you know, often comes through local councils, which is the third tier of, tier of government where most of the money comes through. So it's, you know, and there's so much money that comes out of councils to the community. that That's the voters' money, you know, in a sense. But in a way, it's also an income that doesn't rely on the 1% and selling your work in the galleries. I mean, I, I show in galleries, I want many as many people as possible to buy my work, rich or poor. And that's another form of income for artists. And it's really important that artists have as many, many pots of income that they can generate to survive and sustain a practice. Um, so public art simply one of those, but does offer, offer a possibility of being outside that kind of limited purview of the 1%. So you just have to negotiate the very difficult, often very difficult processes of kind of public bureaucracy. It's the City of Melbourne Council that's richest. It can, it's the one that can give large amounts of money. I mean, there are councils that can't afford to put footpaths down. It's always going to be like this, isn't it? There is something about poor areas not getting as much art. I agree. Yeah, often cities do suck up a lot of the economic energy and resourcing. But one way we have looked at artists being involved is as a more as a consultant model. So it doesn't mean that a work has to be made that's permanent, that's material, that mm. costs a lot of money. Artists can be involved in thinking about spaces, thinking about communities, environments, you know, in, in, <clears throat> in quite different ways. You know, there's not actually one way mm. that it has to happen. And perhaps there's more experimental scope where there isn't so much resourcing. Yeah, and also um, some councils don't have the percent for art. So there's a thing with a new building that's a percent for art. It's really unclear what it is. I think it's meant to be 0.01%, but often it changes and so on. You're never really sure. But it, it is there. So some councils have to choose to implement it, as I understand it. So lots of councils outside of the central ones that don't do it. You know, and then some do have a kind of public art arm and they have small pots of money to do that. So you'd be surprised, actually, yeah. which councils do implement public art projects. And, you know, you don't just have to spend time in lots of different communities and you start, I mean, I've done it for years, you start to see, you know, public art that's been going on for a number of years. There's a question there, though, isn't there, about if you it's a very poor community with not a lot of infrastructure and maybe you're stuck on the sort of fringes of the city and it's only a bus into town, what would a public art work do? in that context. And there is, you know, I mean, I could say, oh, we'll make you happy, you know, but um, maybe you won't. <laughs> but, um, but Maybe it'll just make you angry. You don't have a... Yeah, and I, and I suppose for the hotel that's something too. It's a lot of people object, what's that doing out here, you know, you know and, and so on. So those, those questions are sort of perennial. And I think that there is a kind of civilising impulse around, you know, monuments. So you think of de Tocqueville and the Enlightenment, the, of the library and all these kind of cultural institutions that are there to kind of control the mob. That's what it was for. And uh, the unruly mob. And those kind of monuments were part of that history. And that will happen in the centre. I think one of the best things for me at the forum was how inherently collaborative mm. public art is. It's not an artist mm. in a garret painting. It's mm. There has to be lots of talking. There has to be communica- community consultation. There's often like almost a co-design kind of aspect mm. to it. Uh, that was... It's community building, isn't it? I like Dale Harding, who's an artist from Brisbane, but he'd done a big project at the University of Sydney. He spoke about being invited in to be involved and to make a work for a site, for a place, for a context, rather than a more um, competitive application process where you're competing with fellow artists. But he said that being actually invited in 
to work mm. together set the tone to develop a project that mm. probably ended up much larger and more complex and far reaching than they could have imagined when they started. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, there's often sort of pot of money in you know, urban realm development that is set aside for public art. And it's kind of like, okay, we're going to put 200 grand aside to build a monument of some description. Whereas that money can be integrated and folded into landscape budgets, into some capital works budgets or what have you. And if you can kind of work together in the beginning, collaboratively across those fields, you can have a kind of outcome where you're not really thinking about the money, you're just thinking about, well, what's going to be good or what's going to be, what, what does it need or, or how can we push it to another point or, and so on. I mean, I think we're sort of scratching the surface of that at the moment. That was artist Professor Callum Mortem and Monash University Museum of Art Director Charlotte Day, who came into the studios last week to talk to me. We're going out with George Michael, a great suggestion from Charlotte. This is Outside. (laughs) 